Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and take up the lessons that are found there. We are at the dividing point in the book of Ecclesiastes. If we can draw one, it would be between chapters 6 and 7, between the two halves of this book. The first half is rather hopeless, in which Solomon lays out the vanity and vexation of life. Vexation of spirit occurs nine times in the book of Ecclesiastes, all in the first six chapters. Travail occurs eight times in the book of Ecclesiastes, all in the first six chapters. Because after having laid out the hopelessness of life naturally viewed under the sun, he then is going to teach us some wisdom to make life profitable. And we'll conclude in chapter 12 with the conclusion of the whole matter, to fear God. But he's going to tell us that in today's verses, if the Lord will allow us to make that much progress. There's so much varied wisdom in Ecclesiastes 7. There is so much in this one chapter of 29 verses. He's going to condemn polygamy. He's going to warn about women as we come to the last seven verses of the chapter. He's going to teach us about a good reputation. He's going to teach us about how to worship. He's going to teach us about how to meditate and what we should meditate on. He is going to warn us about God's providence. He's going to warn us about gossip. On and on, in one chapter. There's so much here. The first half of the first verse could easily take the whole day today. Because that's how important it is. A good name is better than precious ointment. Because you spend so much effort and so much time and so much money and so much care on things that don't matter in comparison. And Solomon is giving us a priority in that first verse. Two priorities. There's so much that could be said, but we cannot delay so long that we would take a whole Sunday on the first half of the first verse. If you read the entire Proverb commentary for Proverbs 22.1 that came out in the last couple of days you will have already considered a great number of things about the importance of your reputation. I don't want you to get so caught up in the details of the bark of the trees of this forest that we miss the forest. The forest is Ecclesiastes 7 and the lessons that are there, and I want you to walk out of here with the lessons and not get too wrapped up in the details of some of these clauses and, and verses of wisdom. And we want to learn this wisdom. This, these are the words of God. These are not merely the words of Solomon. They're certainly not my words. These are the words of God. And they teach us wisdom on how to live this life. And they will save you from a frustrating, vexing, profitless life before God and men. While the first ch six chapters told us how hopeless things were, we're immediately going to be told what to do with this life under the sun so that it's not so hopeless and we can make some profit out of it. Let's go to that first half of the first verse. A good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment was a valuable thing in the Bible. There's two words here that we want to focus on, and it's precious and ointment. Precious means it's costly, expensive, and valuable. Ointment means that it was some, in Psalm 133 and verse 1 and 2, when David is describing how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell, to, to dwell together in unity, he described the ointment that was poured upon Aaron's head that ran down upon his beard and upon his garments as a very wonderful thing. If you read the Song of Solomon, you will read about garments that have, that have been anointed with ointment. And the beautiful aroma that it created was a wonderful thing. So in those two words, precious ointment, we gather something that is costly and something that is very pleasant to your olfactory nerves, to the sense of smell. The richer a person is, the better cologne and perfume they can buy. If you can go to Walmart and take it off the shelf, you're at the bottom end of the food chain. Even at Walmart, they lock up the stuff that costs a little bit more because there are so many thieves that shop at Walmart. So they have to lock some of it up. 
But if you go to a store above Walmart and you work your way on up the, the chain of, the food chain of department stores, you will rise from $20 a bottle to $400 a bottle, except the $400 bottle doesn't have four ounces in it. It only has a half ounce. And you can do that at the Haywood Mall. It's a precious ointment. The richer you are, the more that you're able to adorn yourself with precious ointment. You can enhance yourself by a pleasant smell, by buying a costly perfume. However, there's another way you can enhance yourself, and I'm thankful when Solomon makes it very simple for us. He says there's a better way you can enhance yourself. A good name is better than precious ointment. If you want to enhance yourself, it's not the clothing you wear or the perfume that you put on or the ointment that you might adorn yourself with or your house or your car or anything else. It's a good name. And this priority right here tells a man who has read the first six chapters, while all is vanity and vexation of spirit, there is something that I can do with my life under the sun. And that is to have a good name. A good name is better than precious ointment. Do you see the word better in verse 1? Do you see it in verse 2? Do you see it in verse 3? Do you see it in verse 5? Do you see it in verse 8? It was introduced to us in the last part of chapter 6. Better. When Solomon takes two things and compares them, then it is our wisdom to make that difference in our lives. What do you care the most about and how much effort do you put into providing for the things of your life that make you look important or make you smell important? Your house, your cars, your transportation, your clothing, your perfume, your makeup, your hair, all those things. Remember that even in 1 Peter chapter 3, where the Bible's written by one author, it shouldn't surprise you a bit. Let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of the hair and the putting on of apparel and of accessories and gold and silver, First Peter 3 tells a woman, but let it be that hidden man of the heart, even a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. That's better. So here we have a comparison to make, and are the priorities of your life such that you are always seeking to have a good name rather than to adorn yourself in any other way. If you work out or go running, what an incredible waste of time and energy in comparison to building a good name. What a waste. You're not going to take any of that with you, and none of us care about it, and God doesn't care about it, but what about your name? A good name is better than precious ointment. It's better than a fit body. It's better than great clothing with coordinated accessories. It's better than what you drive. It's better than where you live. But how much effort do you put into your name? Your name is your reputation. And you have three of them. You have a reputation for your family. You have a reputation for your first name. And you have a reputation as a Christian. And how much effort do you put into that? That is what we can do under the sun with the life of vanity that God has given us. It's a choice that we make. Look at Proverbs 22 and verse 1. Proverbs 22 and verse 1. The proverb for two days ago. Thank you, Lord, for giving us such a simple comparison. I don't know what the best department store is in Greenville right now. We don't have real fancy ones in this city because it's not a big enough city. You could go to Buckhead. That's the closest place that you could go to and find some fancy ones and go to their perfume counter and have an armed guard come out and let you smell a couple of them. Precious ointment. But a good name's better than that. And it's something you can work on right now. And it's something you can work on all day. And it's free. Except for a little effort on your part and the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit which He's already given you. A great name. We can say names in the Bible and great things come to mind. On Wednesday evening when I said the word name Joseph, some of you men just get a glow on your face. Because you all know that Joseph was a great man. We love Joseph. And there's names in this congregation that can be spoken 
and great thoughts come to mind. And there are names in this congregation that can be spoken, and great thoughts don't come to mind. Because reputations depend upon a man's character and conduct. And here's, it's a choice. Every one of us have a choice. Don't think that it's fate. And don't think God has already settled your name and you can't change it. Because you can change it today by repentance and righteousness. (coughs) Verse 1 of chapter 22. A good name is better than great riches. It doesn't say that. The wording here is a little different. And the difference in wording is helpful to us. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Name stands for your reputation. When your name is sounded, what do people think? And it's something that you can choose. You can choose a great reputation. So while life that we were born into without being asked, this life of vanity under the sun we did not ask for. God gave it to us. And while all is vanity and vexation of spirit, and God has given us a great deal of travail in life, that's pain and trouble, there's a choice we can make that makes life valuable. And that is before God and men, we can have a good reputation. We can have a reputation of righteousness and holiness. We can have a reputation of wisdom. We can have a reputation of love and service. We can have a reputation of humility and graciousness. We can have a reputation of kindness and generosity. They're all choices. And they take some effort on your part. They're free in that you don't have to pay for them with money. But they take effort. Are you known as a servant? Everybody says yes. Are you known as a servant that serves without being asked? Are you known as a servant that goes an extra mile? Are you known as a servant that serves cheerfully, not begrudgingly? If you have to be asked to serve, you ain't much of a servant. So go ahead and say that you're not. Save yourself the time for the Lord telling you that when you meet Him. What do you have in your heart that makes you want to serve? There's a thousand different adjectives or nouns that I could use. What is your name? What is your reputation? Do you want to make use of your life of vanity? Then let's labor to have great reputations. You have a family name to uphold. When you uphold your family name, you're upholding your parents, you're upholding your siblings, you're upholding your children, you're upholding your spouse, all in the sight of God and men. Your family name. Lewis, your last name is Grimm. What you do is a reflection on your father. What you do is a reflection on your mother. It is so painful. The Bible says that a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. But sometimes children who weren't left to themselves bring their mothers to shame. I know it quite well. So you have a last name, Grimm. And the way that you choose to live reflects upon both of your parents and upon your sister and another sister and upon your brother, your last name. Then you've got your first name, Lewis. That's you. You know, if Lewis wants to be a fool, that's one thing. But if you're a fool and you infect and pollute your last name, then you make your family foolish. And you've said you're a Christian. You've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we live foolishly, then we bring reproach upon His name. The Bible says, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.19 It disgusts me how much time is wasted by so many people in stupid activities. It disgusts God. That's why he's going to tell us in Ecclesiastes the next six verses about how important the house of mourning is over the house of feasting. A good name. A good reputation. How gracious are you? Your opinion is worthless. Because your opinion is tainted by the deceitfulness of your own heart and your wicked pride. Your opinion is worthless. If you don't have friends lined up telling you that you're gracious or letting you know that you're gracious, you're not gracious. It's that simple and that is an absolute truth. 
It is far more valuable what others think about you than what you think about you. Because what you think about you is based on pride. What others think about you is based on what you have done in their sight. You say, well, the wicked didn't think very much of Jesus Christ. Well, we ain't talking about the wicked. We're talking about the righteous. We're talking about our own assembly. We're talking about God and His angels. A good name is rather to be chosen. Notice those words, to be chosen. Because it is something you choose, and it's something I choose, and we choose it every day. How we live, where we make our investment. You know, you say, well, I, I go to work and I work hard. Well, great. You have a good reputation. You have a good reputation of being a hard worker. That's one point out of a thousand. And it's on the bottom end of the scale of the important ones. So we haven't made much progress in your response to me. We need to think about those things that the Bible exalts, like love. How loving are you? You say, well, what does love mean? I feel love toward everyone in here this morning. Well, love means you're going to forgive them when they offend you. It means you're going to be long-suffering to them. It means you're going to believe them. You're never going to think evil about them. It means you're all those things. You're, you're going to be kind toward them. You're going to forbear them. Love. A good name. We could preach for hours and hours and hours on Ecclesiastes 7, 1a. A good name is better than precious ointment. If we want to take advantage, if we want to take our lives that are all vanity and vexation of spirit and full of travail and make something of them, then it is not to take this dying carcass and put some expensive perfume on it. That is not the cure for a life of vanity. It is not to take a fine set of clothes and cover ourselves. It is to have a good reputation. A good reputation or a good name is better than precious ointment. You know, in chapter 6 we read that there is a certain kind of a man that doesn't have a burial. All men get buried. The poorest, the poorest of poorest of poorest men get buried. Because we don't want their stinking carcasses above ground. Because they breed evil diseases. The point in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 was not that he wasn't put six feet under. He was put six feet under without any honor. He was put six feet under with relief more than grief. And so we need to ask ourselves, how am I going to be put down? I am going to descend into the ground because I am going to be buried. But will I be put down with grief? Because everyone is grieving at the loss of someone that served them well and helped them in their lives and blessed them. Or with relief that trouble is gone. Difficulty is gone. A burden is gone. Are you a burden or a blessing? What is your name? When your name is spoken, what rings in... You know, instantly we all have an opinion of every one of our names. And when we measure that opinion by adjectives like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and the character, characteristic fruit... Of a spirit-led man, what do you have? Lord, help us. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. Oh, what a powerful little statement that is. As he opens up the second half of the book, this is the wise man. These are God's inspired words. They're not mine. I did not arrange the book of Ecclesiastes. I am just teaching it to you. Are you a participant in the worship of God? Do you, do you participate in people's lives? Are you a servant? Are you a helper? Are you a lover? Are you a strengthener? Hospitality. Prayer. Care. All the terms that the New Testament or the Old Testament uses. Prudence. Discretion. Where do you stand? A good name, a good reputation is better than precious ointment. You can make something of your life, even though it's a life of vanity under the sun. Second half of the verse, and the day of death, 
than the day of one's birth. Now, what is left out, and this is an ellipsis, and it's so often in the Bible, you've got to learn to look for it. We have the word better in the first half of the verse, the first half of the verse, in the first clause, and it's assumed that you're smart enough to know that it belongs in the second half as well, but why waste the paper and the ink to write it again? So the word better is there to be understood. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. That's what an ellipsis is. An ellipsis is words that are left out for brevity's sake and for the power of the statement. By removing the words is better, you don't have them cluttering that second clause, so you just have two things. The day of one's death and the day of one's birth. And one is better than the other. We live in a society, though, that celebrates birth. It's totally geared toward birth. When do we pop out the cigars? At birth. If we had the right perspective on life, death, and eternal life, when would we pop out the cigars? At death for a righteous man only. But, but the whole world thinks oppositely. They light candles and have birthday cakes and we get all excited. And listen, I am not condemning birthday celebrations. As long as that is understood and they are emphasized less than good thinking about death. Because the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth on several counts. And we are not talking about wicked men here. Unless you were to take wicked men and narrow it down to only their life of frustration in this world. And even that wouldn't be totally true because God gives wicked men, in many cases, heaven on earth before they get hell in the world to come. This is talking about good men. Didn't the first half of the verse already tell you that? A good name is better than precious ointment. So we're talking about someone that is seeking a good name or that would be prone to seek a good name. The day of his death is better than the day of his birth. There's different ways that we can look at it. From the life of vanity that the first six chapters describe, the day of death is better than the day of birth, because at least you get out of the rat race that is all vanity and vexation of spirit and full of travail and trouble. But there's more to that to a child of God, as David told us in Psalm 49. And as we know from reading Philippians chapter 1, where Paul said it is far better to depart and to be with Christ. But the real issue of the second half of verse 1 is what we find in verses 2 through 6. That it is, a, it is a philosophy for life. That to think upon your death and to look toward it and to work toward it instead of celebrating something that you had no control over in the past is better. The day of your death, living for it, thinking about it, living in light of it. And what happens to a just man at that moment is better than the day of birth. The day of birth brings you into vanity and vexation of spirit. The day of death takes you out of vanity and vexation of spirit. The day of, death bring, the day of birth brings you in as a sinner. And the day of death takes you to glory. And it's a, it's a perspective on life that the next five verses are going to follow up on. The very next verse says, It is better. To go to the house of mourning. And we take that from the second clause of the first verse that warns us the day of death is better than the day of your birth. Just men, those with truly good names, know that the next life is better than this one. They know that. And so it's better for them. The most sober approach to life and the most pleasant approach to life, the calmest, the most patient approach to life, is a man who understands the day of death and exalts it as being a very important event in his life and a better one than arriving in this world. He is living his life soberly, calmly, enjoying modest pleasures, not going to any extreme, either of excessive righteousness, ungodly righteousness, or excessive wickedness. He's living in light of death. And that day is better for a perspective. If you think more about death than you do your birth, you will have a better reputation than those who don't. Those who are thinking about their birth and wanting to have a party all the time and don't think about death, they don't have a good name. They have a light and frivolous name. And a light and frivolous name, you're nothing but a hyena. You're nothing but crackling thorns under a pot. A lot of flash and a lot of noise and no heat. 
There's no productivity or profit to your life. What will you leave in this world is what we should be thinking about. The day of death is better than the day of one's birth. It ends the vanity of this life totally if you're a righteous man. If you're not a righteous man, oh, it is a point unto men once to die and after that to judgment. That is not a good thing coming next. That is not good. It is not better. They had to live for all they can while they're here. Because they're too foolish to understand the future. And God has not saved them. May God, who has saved us, bless us to live in light of our death. Every one of the verses that follow, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, each one takes a little different angle on the day of your death is better than the day of your birth because the sobriety... And the end of death is better than you arriving in this world. We are so wrapped up in life that we think, and there is a point, there is a, to, a, to a degree, there is decay associated with death. And we end the pleasures of this life. But we are too wrapped up with the things under the sun. There are things above the sun which are being implied at various times in this book only stated in verse 14, really, in chapter 12, that we're going to all stand before God and give an account of our lives. That tells us there's something above the sun. But it's implied here. And even if it's not, the day of death takes us out of the vanity and vexation here, and by living in light of death, you live a better life. Because it's a sober and calm, patient approach to life. The wise, a wise man views death so differently than a fool. The fool is only afraid of death. The fool lives his life every day as if there is no death. Remember, man that is in honor abideth not. A man that is in honor and doesn't understand is like the beasts that perish. The day of one's death is better. You end the vanity and vexation. You go to meet your God. The greater joy is coming. You're out of this trouble. The evil that we have at all ages of life and accelerates and gets worse toward the end is all cut off. The day of death is better than the day of one's birth. There's two priorities in verse 1. Two things that Solomon puts before us and says this is actually better. When we look at adorning our outward body with the character of a righteous man, Solomon says character is better. Choose this one. Live your life of vanity choosing a good reputation rather than adorning yourself, even if it's precious ointment. And the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Instead of celebrating this event at which you did nothing, for which you did not ask, let's celebrate a day that we die with a good reputation a good name, and go to meet our Maker on good terms because we've laid hold of eternal life and we have put up in store a good foundation against the time to come. That's a totally different approach to life. And that is what we ought to have. So we come to verse 2, which is going to elaborate on death versus life. Mourning versus laughter. Sobriety versus partying. Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. What is the end of all men? The house of mourning or the house of feasting? The house of mourning. And the living will lay it to his heart. While you're alive, a wise man will counteract the vanity of life by living in light of death. Two things. And I am preaching against the combined pressure of the world and your flesh and the devil. The devil wants you to be laughing all the way to hell. The house of feasting and the house of mourning. The house of feasting is a party. The house of feasting is full of laughter. The house of feasting is everyone making you feel good and comfortable. The house of feasting is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. The house of mourning is a funeral. That's where you go to mourn. That's what's just been mentioned in verse 1. The house of mourning. 
is to go and mourn the death of a man. His life wiped out as far as earth is concerned. His life under the sun wiped out. We have these two things, and one is better than the other. And it's contrary to what the whole world teaches. You turn on our, our televisions, and the world wants to sit through a sitcom. Sitcoms with canned laughter. And laugh and laugh and laugh. And you know what is terrible is that within each of us is a burning fire to laugh and jest and joke and pick about life when it's very serious and instead we make such light of it. Because that's our sin nature. Our sin nature does not want us to get serious about God and improve our hearts and improve our reputations and improve our standing before God. So we have it in our flesh, and the whole world throws it at us. We live in the most frivolous of generations that we're able to read about. Now, I've said this little, this, this little comparison before, and I hope that you're able to take it without getting twisted out of shape about it. When you look at pictures of your relatives, they were not grinning like little moronic idiots. Your ancestors were very sober on their faces because life was sober to them. They had to work hard and death was up close and personal. If a relative died, they usually died right there in your house. If there was babies born and babies died, it died, happened right there in your house. There wasn't such a thing as a hospice. It was called the spare bedroom. This grinning... Life is not something to grin about. And so the wise man, now this is the wise man. Did Solomon know how to throw a party? Could he throw a decent party? How long would it take for his wives to parade by if it took 30 seconds for each one? 500 minutes? How long is that? Never mind, you know what I'm, I'm just trying to make. Solomon could throw a party. Could he afford a party? Could he afford a party every night? This is Solomon. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. The comparison is a party like a birthday party, since that is what was mentioned in verse 1, and a funeral. A funeral is a better place to go than to a birthday party. I remember working with the officers of Michigan National Bank of Detroit and the terror they had when anyone among them or a close associate of, of them would die. They hated funerals. They hated funerals. They wanted to ignore death and dying as much as they possibly could. I love funerals. Sometimes I worry that there just aren't enough of them. Please don't, don't take that the wrong way either. Do you know what I mean? Because if it says the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting, we don't have very many of them. The wise man said when he compared two things, the house of mourning, a funeral, is better than the house of feasting, a party. And then he explains it. For that is the end of all men. Every single man is going to die. And death is not a party. Therefore, we ought to go to the house of mourning where we can prepare ourselves in light of that coming day of death. You will live a better life after a funeral if you have any wisdom in you at all and you go there and do the right thing. And what is the right thing to do at a funeral? Lay it to your heart. That means get rid of all the frivolity and foolishness that is in your heart by nature and draw from that dead corpse as much as you can. Touch it. Take your children up there to touch that corpse. Let them feel what clay Dust of the earth feels like after the spirit is gone out of it and returns to God. And think about the fact that all the joy, all the knowledge, the wisdom, the pleasure, the hopes, the dreams, the fears, the anxiety, the promotions, and the pleasures that that person had are over. Lay it to your heart. Therefore, if all that's over for that body in the casket there then I want to live a more meaningful life than the things they accumulated that they've left behind. I want to accumulate things that I can carry with me. Lay it up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moths and rust and thieves corrupt, break through and steal and so forth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
you can lay up in store a good foundation against the time to come. But you only do that if you go to the house of mourning and lay it to your heart. If you go to the house of mourning and joke around with other people there and just laugh about it, you will not get the benefit. You want to look at that corpse, remember some of the pleasant times you had with them, remember the animated face, the eyes of the soul being open and being full of brightness and light. And now they're closed, closed forever till the resurrection. And you want to lay it to your heart. That is a better picture of life than anything outside these doors. And get serious about your life. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, saith the preacher. Let me chase a short tangent. What a cue for worship the Lord gives us here. Today, Contemporary worship, casual worship, praise bands. Go into the house of God and expect a party. They treat it like a nightclub. A light show, parties, jesting, jokes, casual. Casual speech, casual attire, casual actions. When the Bible says it's better to go to the house of mourning, There's a place for praise, and there's a place for thanksgiving, and there's a place for great joy, because God has saved us from the power of the grave. However, the soul is made better, the heart is made better, as we're about to read, by going to the house of mourning. And solemn assemblies in the fear of God are very good things for the righteous. If you don't like them, check your own soul. Because a man speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says that the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. Let it be a cue for us about proper worship. This is totally contrary to everything you'll hear outside these walls. The preacher is giving us secret wisdom on how to make something of our lives. A funeral is better than a party. Because you're made better by it. Because that's where you're going and the living will lay it to his heart. While you're alive, you will suck in as much of that thought as you can. That's where I'm going. I want to live in fear of that day so that I will build up godliness before God that I may be accepted of him, whether present or absent. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. And that's what we want to apply ourselves to. Just think, that person in the corpse didn't take a single thing with them. Their glory shall not descend after them, Psalm 49 told us. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That is totally contrary to the world and your flesh. You think that laughter makes you feel comfortable. Why do we want to make each other laugh all the time? I have that same burning propensity in me that you all have. We want to cut that down as much as possible. Because sorrow, and what sorrow are we talking about specifically? The sorrow surrounding someone's death. A death should make us better if we get sorrowful by it and mourn about it properly. That life is short, it's brief, and that we should number our days to apply our hearts unto wisdom. That is the effect that death should have. That's what the house of mourning should send us out the doors with. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And for those of you who have with wisdom gone to a funeral, you've come out with those thoughts, haven't you? The closer that person is to you, the more you think that way. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. You are not made better by a good party where you laugh all night. You are not made better. You are made better in Solomon's comparison by by sorrow, sadness of countenance, because it makes your heart reflect. The sorrow that we're talking about is reflecting on death. Thinking about death. That life is short. That I should be living, living my life soberly in light of eternity. 
That makes you better. Solomon said it does, and I believe that. God said it does. I believe that even more. By the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, is verse 4 just a redundant repetition of verse 2? Or is verse 4 telling you where your heart is when your feet aren't? Verse 2 is, it is better to go. Verse 4 is, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the wise is there. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Did you know that a fool can be at a funeral and still be in the house of mirth? Have you ever seen one? It's terrible. Did you know that a wise man can be at a party and still have his heart in the house of mourning? That's, that's what we want to do. We want to keep our heart in the right place. A sober, calm, mourning perspective of life. That it is short. And for a man that ha- has his heart in the house of mourning, when he's at a party, what does it usually do to him when he goes home and lies in bed and thinks about it? Does he feel polluted? Feels corrupted? Because he's just seen a bunch of vanity up close and personal. Why did Job offer sacrifices the morning after every birthday party of his children? In case they had cursed God in their heart in the levity of that party, it bothered Job. And if you think Job was an old stick in the mud, why don't you go read about what he had? Why don't you read about what God gave him? Why don't you read about how God bragged about Job? But Job's heart was always in the house of mourning. And that caused him, when his children were having a birthday party, to worry about it, that in the foolishness of that party they might have cursed God in their hearts. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. When you go to a funeral, lay it to your heart. Keep it in your heart. And when you leave the funeral, keep it in your heart. When was the last time you stood beside someone you knew well and looked at their dead body and had it soberly remind you, you know, the life that we shared together, for them it's gone. You know, this life is short I should be living in light of eternity. I should be living soberly. Verse 5, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. What happens at a party? The song of fools. Karaoke. The song of fools. Idiots pretending to sing. Never been a better verse in the whole Bible for it. Right here. The song of fools. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. Do you know it's a whole lot better to go into a funeral and have a man stand up and preach the word of God over that dead body? And if that dead body was a fool, to go ahead and name some of those foolish acts of that dead person and to warn everyone living and to rebuke them for living their lives as if they're not going to have that day, that is better than hearing idiots pretend to sing. We have a whole world committed to the one and tries to avoid the other. It's against our nature and it's against the world. But this is the word of God and it's true. This is the perspective of a righteous man. And you young people will think about this. It's almost impossible. So Solomon's going to get to chapter 12 and say, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth before the evil days come. He knows it's hard for you to even think about the serious things of life. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Oh, to go into a sober place, a solemn assembly, and have a wise man rebuke me and tell me that I'm wrong and what I can do to please God better, to please men better, and to live a more righteous life. That is so much better than to go hear a bunch of fools singing. And all the things they can tell you. What happens at a party? Oh, it's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. You look awesome tonight. And just on and on with their flattery. You say, I feel good after I hear things like that. That's because you're a fool. Get the wise part of yourself up and let him stand up. Let the wise man stand up because a wise man wants to be rebuked so that he can be better. 
Verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. After all the vanities of the first six chapters, he lists another vanity, and it's parties, birthday parties, songs of fools, and their laughter. The crackling of thorns. If you have a fire going and you're trying to cook something, bake something, melt something, refine something, you need some heat to produce something profitable. If you throw a bunch of thorns under that fire, they make a lot of light and they make a lot of noise, but they do not produce heat. And do you know what a fool does when he laughs? And do you know what laughter is in general? A lot of light and a lot of noise and no productivity, no profit. Laughter does not help the soul like sorrow does. That's why sorrow is better than laughter, verse 3. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, a lot of bright light, a, a lot of superficial sanguine party show, and a lot of noise, but no heat. Nothing's produced. No profit. And so the wise man in five verses, verses 2 through 6, takes apart... Our whole generation. Our generation is committed to sitcoms, parties, and laughing their way through life. And he says a funeral is a better place. Sorrow is a better place. To be rebuked by a wise man is better than to go to a party. All of you young men, do you know what one thing the Bible wants to say to you young men? When the Apostle Paul took a minister and laid out to him the things he ought to teach to old men... Old women, young women, and then young men. What did he say to young men? Sober-minded. Sober Do you know that's the biggest difficulty, one of the biggest difficulties you have in life? To be sober-minded. All of you young men, hear me. I'm not your enemy. I'm your servant and I'm rebuking you. Because you're full of frivolity. You're full of foolishness. You're full of jesting. You're full of laughter. You're full of a superficial, stupid, thorn approach to life. You have a lot of show and a lot of noise. But there's no heat. There's no productivity. There's no profit. Exhort young men to be sober-minded. And here the preacher is telling you the same thing. Sorrow is better than laughter. For you guys to get together and grieve about your sins. What I'm about to say, you're not even going to understand. And we can hardly imagine it. For you young men to get together and grieve about your sins. For you young men to get together and soberly exhort one another to number your days, to apply your hearts unto wisdom. To pray together. To confess your sins together. And confess your faults one to another. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's what you would do if you were wise. And because you're not, you don't. Because this is what the wise man taught us. I fear for parties. I fear for your laughing. Cut each other off when jesting starts. Jesting is not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, condemns jesting. It condemns foolish talking. And this is the only time you're going to hear it out of 168 hours in a week. And out of 52 weeks in a year. But this is the Word of God. It's not me. I have as much temptation to jest as anyone. It's the Word of God condemning us all. No wonder Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For I have seen the Lord of hosts. You young men are the future of this church. The future of our families. You are the future of this nation. Oh, we don't need the masses. God's never, God's never operated by them. Right. He's preserved entire kingdoms for one man's sake. He says he sought for a man. A man that would stand up and stand in the gap before him and make up the hedge that, could, that he would deliver the land, but he found none. Any one of you young men that can learn to hate foolish laughter, there's holy laughter. God has holy laughter. And there's things that God has created that are, deserve holy laughter. 
but to be sober-minded and to number your days, to know that you only have a certain number of days left if God is very merciful, but to number them one by one. I have today. It is the first day of the rest of my life. It may be the last day of the rest of my life, and I'm going to live soberly in it. I'm going to believe that sorrow is better than laughter. I'm going to believe that a funeral is better than a birthday party. I'm going to believe that being rebuked in a sermon is better than having my friends tell me I'm cool. This is the word of the Lord. So what do we do with our life of vanity? It's very exciting. Solomon just told us where we can go and make my heart better. A funeral. And if you don't have one on your calendar right now, then lay it to your heart anyway. Think back to the ones you've been to and resurrect those people in your minds that are now gone and lay it to your heart and be sober about it. Examine yourself and humble yourself before the brevity of life. Confess your sins and make your heart better because it's, it's the end that we're all headed toward. So we should lay it to our heart. And then rise up from that house of mourning. Come out of that house of mourning, committed to number your days and apply your hearts to wisdom and choose to have a good name. A good first name, which is your unique identifier that can only be influenced by you, your first name. And then a great family name, whereby you, you promote and support and help your parents and your siblings by having a great second name. And then you've all taken the name of Christ. Let's come out of that house of mourning and that sorrow of, sorrowful thinking and a, with a better heart. And let's adorn the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. By living like Him. Let's speak like Him. Let's think like Him. Let's love like Him. Let's forgive like Him. Those are your three names. Choose a good one. Understand that the day of death is a good perspective to have. It's better than the world's perspective of celebrating birthdays. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. And may the wisdom fall into our souls and stay there. Amen.